You are listening to The Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt. This week on the show, Rob and I speak in the studio with LGBTQ community leader and Kundalini Yoga practitioner, Jacob Rudolph. Jacob is the executive director of the Pride Network, which offers young LGBTQ leaders opportunities for personal transformation and professional development, and as a participant and is a participant in the Gong Avatar Academy, led by his spiritual teachers Trinity Devi and Sotantar Suraj. We'll get started with that show after a short musical break. Musical interludes on this show are from a CD called Ravi Shankar, Chants of India, produced by. Harris, George Harrison. This chant is called Omkaraya Namaha. This is The Mystical Positivist, a radio show dedicated to the application of reason in the pursuit of spiritual practice and development. It consists of commentary, book reviews, interviews, and discussion in and around the local and larger spiritual community. The thesis of the show is that rationality is in no way the antithesis of deep mystical experience. In fact, we assert that it is a necessary ally. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt, director of Taiyu Meditation Center and co-founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol. Great to be here on this first full day of summer 2019. This week on the show, Rob and I speak in the studio with LGBTQ community leader and kundalini yoga practitioner Jacob Rudolph. Jacob Rudolph made international headlines in 2013 when a video of him coming out in front of more than 300 of his classmates went viral with over 2 million views on YouTube. Soon after, Jacob was featured on national TV interviews with Anderson Cooper, Thomas Roberts on MSNBC, Don Lemon on CNN, and with Joy Behar, as well as in the LA Times and other print media. 
Inspired to continue speaking up, Jacob successfully assisted local civil rights groups that same year in passing a state law that bans conversion therapy on LGBTQ youth in New Jersey. Since then, he has been selected for the Point Foundation Scholarship, the John Lewis Fellowship for Diversity and Activist Change, and was selected as the student commencement speaker at his college graduation, University of Miami, in 2017. He currently serves as the executive director of the Pride Network, which offers young LGBTQ leaders opportunities for personal transformation and professional development to create change within themselves and in our communities. Jacob is also known as Manush Balder, a name given to him by his spiritual teachers, Trinity Devi and Sotantar Siraj. Founded by Master Gaunt Avatar, Sotantar Siraj in Newport Beach, California, the Gong Avatar Academy is a growing community around the world. In addition to the original community in California, the GAA has also expanded to the East Coast with trainings in Miami, Florida, led by Trinity Devi, and Switzerland, led by Sekhmet Mera. Through a process of direct apprenticeship, Jacob has dived into a journey of self-study of the force within and in all. Using the gong as a mirror, Jacob studies and applies ancient and modern practices to awaken himself within the matrix, using the principles of nature and the universe, sound and vibration, to enjoy the totality of who we are. The Gong Avatar Academy is a journey towards awareness and self-empowerment, raising in consciousness as individuals and collectively, discovering a beyond mastery state, commanding and accepting all our thoughts, emotions, feelings, and actions, cultivating the avatar state, embracing the one and the all. Jacob Manush is a loving friend, spiritual student, and a passionate advocate for LGBT empowerment and as the foundation of a compassionate American society. So Jacob Manush, welcome to the mystical positivist. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. Well, it's, glad, it's great to have you, and um, we will begin with uh, this question we ask now, as, custom, as is a custom for us in our first interview um, with um, a, a new guest, and that is to invite you to cast your memory back to childhood and youth. And in so doing, um, if a particular experience or a moment arises, to awareness that you could now, in retrospect, call a precursor, a herald of the life and direction you have been cultivating in recent times. Tell us about it. Well, um, the memory is not so joyful, actually. Mm-hmm. It is the memory of when I was approximately 10 or 11 years old, and I uh, found out um, in the middle of January that my house had burned down, and I had lost all of my possessions. Um, My family had lost all their possessions. And I think that that memory comes to mind in this moment because as I have grown and moved on my on my journey, um, in retrospect, that was a tremendous blessing, I think, in my life because it awakened me to the understanding that material advantages weigh heavily sometimes on the individual's consciousness and that it, it, it sort of forced me to, to move into another space and 
my my relationship to material things hasn't really been the same since that. Um, How old were you again? About ten or eleven. Okay. Yeah. So I had accumulated enough over the course of my life where by that time that it had it had felt like a very substantial loss. Um, yeah. And I assume the the loss of the space, I don't know how long you'd been living in whatever house it was that, that burned down, but I presume that that would be uh, disturbing or dis- dislocating in a certain kind of emotional way as well. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the the house that I lived in at the time was just across the street from the elementary school that I was attending. And this is actually kind of a funny little story that I'll, I'll share. I was, um, it was a Tuesday morning, mm-hmm. about 9.45, and it was time for me to go with some of my classmates to the music room where we were going to have our, our band lesson. We The trumpets all kind of gathered together and get ready to play hot cross buns or something. And my band teacher had us warming up, and then all of a sudden, there were these fire sirens just blaring and blaring and blaring outside of the school and it sounded like there were quite a few of them and everybody in the band lesson was so fixated on on those sounds and someone's oh it sounds so close i wonder what's going on and me um with what would eventually develop as a wonderful and beautiful passion for music um i said to them guys it's probably nothing can we just get back to the lesson please that's so funny (laughs) verbal irony at its finest um, but yeah, the after school that day when I was let out of, of school, my, my parents were there and we had a little meeting in the nurse's office and I got to see what had happened to my house and it was horrifying, um, to see that. Was it the only house that had uh, burned down or? Yep. It was, um, an electrical fire and thankfully none of the other houses were impacted, but being as it was in January, it was freezing in the house when we had woken up because, in fact, the furnace had broken the night before. So mm. my dad, who worked at the attorney general's office at the time, had to take my dog with him to work. So mm. my dog wasn't even in the house, which, you know, it, it, there, was, there was, I think, something. A blessing there. Something yeah. there. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Well, so had, had that been your uh, residence um, throughout your childhood? No. Or was that a relatively new new space? Yeah, we had been living there for maybe a year and a half. Okay. Um, I had moved a few times over the course of my life. Um, my dad, uh, who is a wonderful person, and I love him with all my heart, suffers from bipolar disorder. Mm-hmm. And when I was growing up, he was in a, a space with his mental health where job turnover was, was relatively high, so we mm-hmm. were moving around a lot. And... Um, yeah, just feeling like I never, I wanted to put roots down and then all of a sudden it goes up in smoke was, was also challenging and learning how to, you know, come back to those feelings of being ungrounded and untethered and, and learning to put roots down now in my life and in the things that matter to me and in my commitments is, has been really special. Got it. So it sounds like this was an even more, this, uh, you know, uh, Pulling the rug out from under you is an even more extreme example to some extent of what you'd already been experiencing in a way due to this need to have to move relatively frequently. Yes. But, uh, but of course, taking the stuff... So, so now I, I sort of get, get the picture a little bit more than I did before, um, which is that because you were focusing on losing your stuff and not the house. And so it wasn't the house that you had, like, emotional connection to particularly. It was the stuff that you had transported, presumably, from earlier uh, places. 
Yeah, that's right. And you know, ultimately, uh, we rebuilt on that same oh. plot of land. And the house that I have now is really beautiful. It was it was custom made um, mm-hmm. with a great architect. My parents did a really great job of of planning everything out. And I think it's we we talk a lot in my family about the the phoenix and rising from the ashes and mm-hmm. how something even more beautiful can come after a great loss. So. Yeah, that was definitely a spiritual awakening for me at the time. I wouldn't have called it that then, obviously, but sure. in retrospect, yes. So did you find um, uh, growing up at, uh, and subsequent to that, did you have a um, a yearning or an inkling uh, towards uh, uh, discovering a more passionate commitment to a formal spiritual practice, or was that something that emerged later? So not shortly after my house burned down, I was probably about 12, maybe 11 and 12, um, the Nickelodeon show Avatar The Last Airbender premiered. Um, I don't presume you both are familiar with the show. I've, I've, heur- I've heard of it. I don't, I don't know the... Uh, uh, I haven't watched it. It, it's it's an incredible creation uh, that had a very profound impact on me. It's a very spiritual show, um, pulling a lot of themes from martial arts traditions yeah. in in various uh, Asian cultures. But it was, I mean, they were even having episodes about, you know, the the main character, the avatar, meets a guru, and the guru teaches Aang how to open his chakras, and I I was just engrossed by the the content of the show, and it it that was really something that inspired a deep yearning in inside of me to connect with something in this way, in the same way that the protagonist in the show was, was sort of living out his destiny. I was like, well, my, my destiny's got some spiritual something to it, but I, I didn't really know what that was. And um, if, if you don't mind me just pivoting a little bit out of childhood quickly, yeah. and we can come back if that's what you prefer, but the, the Gong Avatar Academy, which I'm a part of now, pulls a little bit... A lot in in many ways from this Avatar: The Last Airbender show. Mm. So it is so funny to me how what we what my childhood desire was ultimately has now manifested in in a lot of ways as my current practice and my current experience. So, yeah, well, I mean, we'll get back to uh, the Gong Avatar Academy, yeah. of course, but um, uh, uh, just. To make clear, you, you know, before the show, you've you've mentioned to us that you had a more or less secular um, upbringing. So, so this um, these two these two sets or the set of experiences that you've just described for us are not the sorts of things that the rest of your family might have responded to in the same way, you know. And for example resonating so strongly as you describe with with the content of of the t- of the TV show that um by the way when i was growing up as a as a kid in the in the 50s and 60s there were no um characters on shows that i could see um talking to gurus <laughs> so so it's a very different well, context i mean sp- i think uh, the original star trek was the closest thing that we would have had are you kidding me sorry but that that, that doesn't really uh, well it's not the same it's not the same at all in any event um so so it's i'm intrigued by this um by this uh, aspect of your background um but i'm wondering how that 
how the trajectory of interest in spiritual in matters spiritual uh, uh, proceeded for you after having had been awakened first by the dislocation of the loss and second by the demonstration of the idea that there's spiritual practice and um, transcendence, presumably a, qu- a quest, a meaningful quest available. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So how did how did that how did that manifest for you then at that relatively still young age, or and subsequently? Well, after my thirteenth birthday, which I was raised um, relatively secular, but also I was raised as a, a reform Jew, mm-hmm. and my the thirteenth birthday, it's well known, bar mitzvah time, mm-hmm. um, Mazel Tov, and my grandmother, my nana, took me to India for ten days to visit my really? dad's brother, um, my uncle Stephen, who at the time had been living there for over twenty years, and mm-hmm. I knew he, he was sort of on his spiritual quest, and I was so oh, fascinated right. with with all that was happening in in his life, and getting to go to India and meet his teacher. Oh. Um, I even have so you knew it, you had known about his his presence in India and or had you met him before had he come to visit or something Yeah I had met him but it was always sort of like you know the the Dos Equis most interesting man in the world uh <laughs> archetype that was always sort of how I felt about him that he would just sort of pop in with these lavish you know gifts and stories and he's a very charismatic um really really great guy uh, so there was always this kind of mystery, like a mystique almost around him and, and mm-hmm. what his life was actually like. Mm-hmm. Um, but going to India and actually seeing it was just really beautiful and really profound. And also, you know, coming from such a comfortable middle class background and going to India at the age of 13 and, and seeing what real poverty is mm-hmm. also had a really important influence on my perspective. Where where in India were you? Um we explored New Delhi, and he lived in Faridabad, which is about 40 minutes south. Um, his teacher is in Vrindavan, and we also visited Agra and Jaipur. You know, the little yeah. they call that the, the what the Golden Triangle or, yeah. or something. Yeah, so northern India. So, so, so what was um, what was it like to? You said you you met your uncle's uh, teacher. <laughs> how, how 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 was that for you as a thirteen year old young man? Well, the the most vivid memory I have of of him, his name is Satnarayan. We were allowed to go down into his uh, study, and if my memory serves me correctly, what he does is he translates sacred texts from Sanskrit into other languages so that mm-hmm. they can become more accessible. Mm-hmm. Um, he also works quite a bit with Edwin Bryant, who is the the popular author of the Yoga Sutras, that mm-hmm. really thick red Yoga Sutras book that mm-hmm. I think lots of folks have. Mm-hmm. Um, so they have a bhakti yoga practice over there, but I remember he had invited my grandmother, me, and my uncle into his study where he does his sacred work. And he had told us to take our shoes off. And Mm -hmm. through just absence of mind, I I didn't. And I stepped into his space with my shoe on, and immediately he turned around and gave me the most intense look I have ever seen in my life. Like, it just penetrated all the way into my my psyche. So I haven't forgotten that moment. And I was just like, whoa, you know. And in retrospect, I think it was was a moment of I understood a power Mm -hmm. that people can have when they get to that certain spiritual point of just cutting right through. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was was really fascinating. Um, But he was a very loving person 
you know. Yeah. I presume you took your shoes off at that point. Oh, you bet. <laughs> <laughs> they came over real quick. <laughs> Anything else uh, from that from that uh, time with uh, visiting your uncle with your grandmother? Um, not really anything major, but I mean, shortly after my 13th birthday, I, puberty started to really hit me, and that's when I started questioning my sexuality, and I think whatever spiritual buds may have been coming up for me at that time were also overshadowed in a lot of ways by the trials and tribulations of being a young gay man uh, in the closet and figuring out what that means and fighting against urges that I didn't think I was supposed to be having and mm. the complexity around those lived experiences um, brought me into a, a bit of a, de- a depression and, and kind of a dark, dark age for most of the end of middle school and most of high school. So I, I'm, I'm interested in um, your perspective on this because uh, you're 24 years old, so you're uh, coming of age as a gay man in a very, very different era than, uh, say, I did or Rob did. Um, and what I find interesting about that is that we have the idea socially that um, there's a lot more acceptance uh in being gay, um, and there's just more awareness and openness and things like that. You mean now as compared yeah. to previous? Yeah, now, years. now as compared to like uh, the 1980s or the 1970s or 1960s or, or earlier, and yet you still describe a um, uh, a very difficult process uh, that perhaps you know was shorter by virtue of the uh, era that we're in than uh, it might have been for people in a different era. But still, uh, there's a lot of internalized um, doubt and uh, uh, struggle. And so I'm just interested to, to, you know, your view, and do you see that as a just kind of the nature of the situation of, uh, of a minority experience, you know, arising in a culture that's still highly oriented towards uh, uh heteronormality or you know or is it or is society genuinely changing society is definitely changing um i think with the advent of social media we have had the opportunity to come into contact with narratives that we otherwise would not have been able to experience and i think this is also sort of a parallel to what was happening in alabama and mississippi and the civil rights movement and how the police brutality against protesters was being televised in states in the north that was really showing people what was actually really going on when they otherwise never would have been able to experience the narratives happening um during their time. So with social media, it's just an abundance of information means an abundance of storytelling. And I think the younger generation, my generation, and I consider myself sort of at the the end of the millennial group, mm-hmm. um, but the, the Generation Z now that's really emerging, uh, they seem to have a much more grounded uh, comfortability in diversity and acceptance of um, especially LGBTQ people. I mean, even in surveys that have been conducted by groups like GLSEN, uh, which work a lot with high school youth, it's seeming like everyone's identifying as at least bisexual nowadays. Um, maybe that's a bit of an exaggeration, but, but the, the, the data and the numbers is so much higher now, um, suggesting that people are coming out because it's just more there's more space to exist outside of having to live in the closet or Mm -hmm. 
choose, you know, a gay label. Right. There's 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 a the there's options now. Um but when I was in middle school, cultural attitudes toward gay people were probably the same as they were in the mid 90s. I mean, there there really probably there wasn't much of a shift until marriage equality became an item of discussion for the nation and we saw the most dramatic shift in cultural attitude toward a minority group in in recorded history with with that movement. So post-marriage equality was uh, the year I came out actually in in 2013 was the year we we achieved marriage equality and I think after that point things became different for students and young people. Got it. So I want to switch to a uh, then kind of the combination on the uh, uh, it's a spiritual question and a uh, uh, an LGBTQ question, and that's at at times I've held the thesis that um, as a spiritual practitioner, um, being gay or a lesbian, be, being in some way an outsider is a gift because the one aspect of spiritual practice is to call into question the narratives that we inherit from our society. And as a uh, person growing up gay, you can't, whether you're out or not, you can't help but confront fairly immediately the disconnect between the narrative that you are inheriting and the lived experience of your body. And, And so in that sense... Uh, to the extent that one can utilize that experience in a positive way and not not have it sour into a kind of a bitterness or a self-hatred, that recognition or that confrontation, uh, as it were, greases the wheel for a larger questioning about other narratives that we inherit. I'm, 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 and I'm, th- I'm throwing that thesis out there just uh, to see how that lands with you and whether that's consistent with your experience. Uh, it's it's definitely consistent, um, and I I have landed there myself um, in my own reflections on what it means to be gay in in a society that has a script very much laid out for everybody. You know, boys wear blue, girls wear pink. You're gonna you know watch all these great Disney movies, and they all live happily ever after. So you can too. Um, that that experience of having to push back against all of the conditioning that had been foisted on me by entertainment and you know my parents to some degree but they've been extraordinarily accepting and and kind about my process and even a little over involved maybe my dad watches RuPaul's Drag Race with me now and he's got some very heated opinions but I don't know if um, we'll bring those onto this podcast but uh yeah I mean the other thing that I've noticed too is that when you are gay and or queer or, or whatever and you i you begin to disidentify with the norm it can become very isolating and in that isolation you begin to develop some kind of a void inside of yourself a deprivation of connection with something um that grounds you and i think for most people what grounds them is expectations from their parents or expectations to achieve in society and be professional, etc. Um, but maybe when you're queer, it can it, that void persists a little bit, which is why I think we see higher rates of suicide among mm. youth, which is why we see higher rates of drug abuse among youth and engagement and um, risk behaviors and sex and, and other uh, substances. Um, one of the other things is I think sometimes there can be a little bit of an over... Um, identification with 
the LGBTQ community itself. Um, when you feel so alone and then you start to meet people in college, let's say, who never would have existed in your hometown, it can be really appealing to throw yourself completely into this new community and this new group who have had lived experiences like you and who have had um, trauma that you've shared, for example. But when that happens, sometimes that trauma can begin to inform the community culture. And through this over-identification with the trauma and with the culture that it then produces, I think that we sometimes see the emergence of in-group and out-group uh, behaviors developing even within the LGBTQ community, the, the whole oppression Olympics mm -hmm. conversation, if you will. Um, so just being mindful of all of these things and, and going back to your thesis about spirituality, um, my hope with my work in the Pride Network is to begin to introduce spiritual themes into the LGBTQ community at the level of leadership, uh, people who have been taking on leadership roles and, and young people who are emerging into those roles, uh, beginning to identify some of these uh, more insidious aspects of sometimes what, what it means to be in an LGBTQ community or being an LGBTQ person and beginning to revisit these um, dreads with with tools for transformation. Well, let me, let me uh, then ask you, because um, not all listeners may know the scope of, of what you're referring to with the word leadership. I mean, I, th I think a lot of people might associate that with professional life uh, and uh, possibly possibly some other arenas of volunteer work or something like that but but I, I get the sense from you that uh, you're using that word in a way that is broader in scope so um, talk about what leadership is as you understand it and what you um, uh, understand it to to encompass yeah, um, I think there are as many forms as leadership as there are people. It's it's very very idiosyncratic in my view. Um, I see leadership as a way to um, as a way to reach your your potential or move toward reaching your potential and begin to share tools with other people to help them reach their potential. Whether and then that's transferable within multiple contexts. So yes, I think a lot of the way we think about leadership today is very focused and grounded in corporate culture and sort of moving up the ladder professionally. Um, but I think today we're seeing a lot of emergence of grassroots organizing, local impact, um, just being a role model and somebody who can demonstrate to others what it means to live in, in alignment. Um, to me, this is, this is what really leadership is. So, so, so leaders are not a, a separate class of people um, who... Uh, work within a hierarchical structure, but rather you're, you're speaking to an idea of leadership that, that it sounds like you hope everyone will learn to manifest in some particular way, whatever, whatever their gifts are, whatever their inclinations are, um, and it's a, it's a, it sounds like it, it certainly involves a kind of empowerment, are there, and, and, if, and since you're nodding, I'll, I'll ask you further if there are any other dimensions to leadership in this way. 
Yeah, I mean, communication, I think, is a really important aspect of leadership because when you're a leader, in many ways, you have a vision. Um, this vision could be a personal thing or it could be something that you want to see happen in a community. And in order to lead people, you need to be able to share your vision and you need to be able to communicate that vision. And learning how to do that in an effective way um, is also very empowering for other people and for yourself and making space for other people to be included in that process of creating a vision and having a vision and not letting it turn into a hierarchical thing of like, oh, well, I'm organizing this and this is mine and you are just here to support that. Um, disassembling the hierarchical structure and making it much more pluralistic and inclusive um, serves a lot of different names, the least of which um, I guess could focus on the ever-changing demographics in this country and the emergence of the new American majority and having a style of leadership that allows for the inclusion of perspectives across races, creeds, and cultures and ages. Um, the LGBTQ community, in my view, is really beautiful and unique in that we're a part of every race and culture and creed and age and religion. Mm -hmm. um, so in my view, I sort of see us as seeds planted in every sector and every culture and every aspect of human life and being able to touch and empower LGBTQ individuals and grow them and help them grow as leaders mm -hmm. um, allows us to reach into all of, all of our society. Got it. So, so it sounds like you're saying that that in order to achieve this non-hierarchical, non-ownership um, kind of manifestation, that you um, you understand that um, the contribution of all the, of all these people is, is it's it's all meant to mix. In other words, in other words, I mean that. And and this this gets to gets back to a kind of fundamental disconnect that I have with the, with the word leader or leadership because leader almost necessarily implies someone who's out in front moving in a direction and people are following. But you're that that's the leader model that I have in my head from my education, uh, reading, training, etc. But this is that's not. A metaphor that would apply to this form of leadership, as I understand what you're saying, at least in some ways. In other words, you're leading back towards um, the direction, or leading within and inviting people within um, whatever groups you're uh, associated with. Is that is that a fair yes. uh, read of it? Yes. And is there any fur anything further you'd add to that? I think you did a beautiful job. Okay. Thank you. Well, it, it's interesting, the vision that you're describing, uh, particularly for uh, the LGBTQ community to establish and to gain leadership with the intent to mix into society uh, as a whole, as opposed to, again, this notion that you were sort of uh, contrasting of... Uh, overly bonding within a isolated community that it seems like functionally or energetically you envision that uh, uh, there's a role or a place an energetic and vital place for LGBTQ people to play in society as a whole 
not only as holders of possibility, but uh, holders of a kind of a diversity or a creativity that can awaken possibilities in society at large. Yes. So, so one of the things that I, I deeply remember my first experience of going into a gay bar. Um, this was what woman would it have been? I guess in the early seventies. And um, what struck me was not just the diversity, uh, you know, racial or ethnic diversity, but the completely unexpected, not that I had any real expectations, but the unexpected diversity of class. So there were people of every income level who were gathering together. Um, And... um, that was that was unique in my experience. I, you know, the, I, w- I was the product of a, of a very rigorously middle class um, life at that point, and so um, so I guess I guess that's one of the interesting things to me about this vision that you outline and your your sense of what leadership entails is 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 that it also has the possibility to bring together people who are not only defined by um, class, but but can reach across whatever economic or other divides uh, exist. And and I, and I th- and I bring this up mostly because it seems to me that a lot of the talk of diversity, the use of the word diversity these days, at least in American politics, uh, focuses on racial or ethnic. Um, and sometimes religious, but not so much um, class diversity. I don't know if you have any comments to make a, about that or a reflection on it. Yeah, I do. Um, the statement I made before about LGBTQ people serving as bridges to all of the other demographics that we can identify mm-hmm. within our culture, class is most certainly one of them. And I think part of the role that I've decided to take on as as a leader is to give people the tools that they need to work from within themselves to heal whatever limitations are preventing them from becoming leaders and then equipping them very specifically with resources and mentorship that they would need in order to create change in their communities. Because I think what we should be moving away from as a society is having a very, like a top-down approach, mm-hmm. um, whether it's governments or whether it's, you know, nonprofit services. How are, How is anybody supposed to know what the lived experiences of a, of a person of very low income is unless they themselves have gone through that experience. So, or at least had, had some kind of um, contact with folks who are doing that. I mean, more than just trivial contact. Yeah, and I think it even also goes beyond the intellectual understanding of the, the circumstances sure. of, of what it means to be you know poor. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very different to read it in a book versus not go, or go without food for multiple days at a time. So mm-hmm. the, those people are the ones who have the real uh, leadership potential within their communities because it's part of who they are. It's part of their story. And letting those narratives come up is really, really important uh, to me. So I, I think, I, you know, as we weave this... Um sort of tapestry of your uh, expression through um, 
both your your leadership work and and your spiritual work. I want to kind of attack back to the spiritual for a little bit and give you an opportunity to talk more about the current form that your spiritual practice is taking and maybe uh, walk us through how you got involved then or you know how you got connected with the or or even connect us from where we left off in your biography yeah. up to the um, um, engagement with the uh, uh, Gong Academy. Sure. So um, during my teenage years, I I developed a pretty intense uh, chronic pain in my genitals, which was really hard for me to to live with, and it, it reached a point where I I began to unconsciously numb. Uh, that part of myself, my mm-hmm. body. Um, and when I was around maybe 20 years old, just four years ago, I realized that I was waking up <laughs> in chronic pain, I was living my day in chronic pain, and I was going to bed in chronic pain. And I was mad as hell because I thought I was 20 years old, there's no reason why my body should be failing me right now. Um, and so I decided to really dig in and, and start seeking some help. And without getting into my whole medical history, one of the things that I did come across was um, Shivananda Yoga, which was being offered at my now alma mater, the University of Miami, Go Canes. And I was taking classes with um, uh, my teacher, Adriana, about three times a week. And, you know, this I think this also ties into my experiences um, being gay as well, because at the time, on top of the chronic pain that I had been experiencing, I had internalized a lot of shame around my body's ability to perform athletically due to some really traumatizing experiences with baseball, maybe, <laughs> when I was a kid and, and Little League, and the way that my teammates uh, treated me and talked to me and, and just my overall uh, inability to, to really connect with the sport. Um, and so when I was starting my basic yoga practice, I had very little confidence in my body. I was very ashamed of my body, and it, it seemed to just be in pain all the time and, and not coordinate and do the things that I wanted it to do. Um, so after two years of three days a week practicing with her, um, I had reached a new point in my confidence in myself and my body. Mm-hmm. And it, all, it, all, it started to get the feeling of, I needed something a little bit juicier, you know? You do the same thing all the time. It was sort of the same flow in many ways. Mm -hmm. Um, I needed something juicier. And my roommate at the time, Joey Rosen, um, who's also now in the Gong Academy with me, told me about this teacher who his his jazz professor in the music school had, had told him of. And we went and took her class, and it was a kundalini yoga class. And... Um, given that I was experiencing chronic pain in the genitals, it was va- fascinating to me that the the topic of that class that day was uh, Kriya for the sacral chakra. And when when that got announced, it was sort of like a wave came over my face of just like, there's no way she just said that. Like, how is this that I... This is exactly what I've been looking for. This is exactly what I've needed. Um, and so... I started taking Kundalini classes with her, and her name is Trinity Devi, and she is now uh, my Gong Avatar trainer. She operates the Gong Avatar Academy out of Miami, and the rest is is present moment. Got it. Well, I mean, uh, maybe it would be interesting to describe what 
uh, to the extent, whatever extent is uh, practical and feasible and appropriate, um, what what it is you do um, with this practice, and as well as um, since you're continuing with it, I I, I presume that the uh, the bene- that you experienced benefits. Um, because you're talking about some of the negative stuff in the past tense. Um, so tell us more about all that. Yeah, um, my, my current practice is largely around Kundalini Yoga. I I have a daily sadhana that I practice um, that is actually a sadhana that has been developed by uh, Sotantar, who's the founder of the Gong Avatar Academy. It's called the Gong Avatar Workout. Um, we bow the Jap Sahib, which is uh, a Sikh uh, traditional practice. Mm-hmm. Um, what does that What does that look like? Bowing. It's when you put your. Uh, <laughs> well, there are lots of ways of bowing. Sure. Well, we uh, clasp the hands behind the back. We sit on our knees mm-hmm. um, in, in the rock pose, and the music plays. Um, and there's a, a rhythmic bowing that okay. that happens. Okay. Um, Got it. So it's almost like a, a physical warm-up in addition to being a devotional mm-hmm. practice. Um, mm-hmm. But the other thing, too, and this also ties in with the Gong Academy, is we work a lot with sound and sacred sound. And one of the aspects of mantra is being able to tune in to the sound underneath the words themselves. That There's a sound current that's called the Nod, mm-hmm. N-A-A-D. And the Jap Sahib has a really powerful sound current. The translation of the Jap Sahib is really worth um, looking up and experiencing. It describes all of the different aspects of uh, the divine mm-hmm. and God. And um, Why don't you spell that uh, term so that people could look it up? Sure. Uh, J-A-A-P space S-A-H-I-B Jap Sahib. Okay. Got it. Um, so... Yeah, the the practice is otherwise relatively physical. Um, Working on the physical body in Kundalini Yoga is really important, especially the navel center is really um, emphasized because the the idea in in many ways is to to develop dedication to your practice, which then develops into commitment to your practice, which then develops into devotion. Um, And the navel center is sort of seen as the seat of the willpower. And when you have a very strong navel center, you're able to commit and you're able to follow through and you're able to keep up with the rigor and the demands of of daily life. Kundalini Yoga focuses a lot on not escaping into some ashram or leaving the physical world in order to focus exclusively on the spiritual practice, but really to be in the world and to be present in the world and to thrive in the world. Um, To become a leader in the world, I think, is also part of the Kundalini practice of having the caliber and the capacity to make an impact wherever you are to bring sacredness into the work that you do. Um, it's it's really important to have a, a strong physical body, according to Kundalini Yoga. And and, uh, and this uh, lineage of Kundalini Yoga is the, uh, originated with uh, Yogi Bhajan, is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. He came over to the United States in the mid-60s, I believe, and sort of began to pull... Um, individuals who were very interested in the counterculture movement and were experimenting with hallucinogenics and 
um, he was offering something else outside of, of psychedelics and but was very much in alignment with what a lot of uh, the youth at the time were, were looking for mm-hmm. yeah, and I, I, from what I understand with uh, uh, this tradition it's, al- it's also uh, uh, unusually for uh, uh, you know being originating from a, uh, a, a, a tradition in a different culture uh, uh, gay and lesbian friendly too I've uh, I, I, been surprised I've done research on that uh, that uh, there was a space open very early uh, in uh, his teaching for people of all uh, diversity it's 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 very progressive um, I think the roots that Kundalini has take has has began in the United States has ultimately um, re- resulted in the emergence of what I think is now being called American Sikhism because um, Kundalini Yoga has a lot of roots in Sikhism uh, which it, the Jap Sahib, as I mentioned, is, is mm-hmm. part of that Sikh tradition. But it takes on a whole whole other context. Um, a lot of other uh, information and ways of thinking and, and concepts were introduced by Yogi Bhajan that go way beyond um, and outside of what Sikhism discusses. And seeing as it has begun to take root with the counterculture, or began to take root with the counterculture, which was a very politically left um, a group of individuals, you know, anti-war, all you know, love and and all that. Um, I think it has continued to become a space for people who are largely on the left, largely lean left. The technology itself is is neutral. Obviously, it's it's often described as being um, scientific and having just sort of that objective quality to it that is beyond thought and mind uh, but just works because this is a physical body and it's a machine and it works like any other machine you just gotta know how to how to push its buttons um, <laughs> but that's, I, I'm, that's a funny metaphor for the for for the uh, the sacred temple <laughs> yeah <laughs> but even the sacred temple I guess has can have buttons it's got buttons it's got a sympathetic nervous system it has a parasympathetic nervous system right. it's got you know hypothalamus it's got a lot of stuff that it, it, it is very clear on um, giving us the technology we need to activate these certain parts of our bodies to, to live the kinds of life and have the quality of life that we want to live. But all of this to ultimately say that I think it is a very safe place for queer people and um, individuals who are sort of outside of the norm of regular identity. And I mean, also, this speaks to the way that organized religion in the United States has been a force of detriment to the LGBTQ community in, in, in many, many ways, in, in many traditions of, of religious Yes, certainly society. Mo- most forms. Um, but it, it, there's an element, uh, in, from what I understand in Kundalini Yoga, of a more naturalistic understanding of the person, like how you are, how you present, is uh, something to be both celebrated and you're removing obstacles to, to uh, neurotic functioning as opposed to fixing something you know uh, that's organically broken. Yo- Yogi Bhajan didn't want us to look at the garbage and figure it out. He just wanted us to take it out and leave it on the curb. It, there's a lot 
that gets talked about of clearing the subconscious mind and there's even uh, programs within Kundalini Yoga called White Tantric Yoga which is a whole day of meditation um, eight, almost six to eight hours of, of meditation and it's described as being as powerful of one year of a regular meditation practice and multiple years of psychotherapy so there there is an understanding that in order to be happy, healthy, and holy, which is what the three H O. That's that was the uh, moniker back in the day. Yes, Yogi Bhajan's um, legacy is is the three H O organization, and they have a great website for anyone who's interested on finding out some more resources or information on this. It's three H O dot org. Um, and the three H's are again happy, healthy, and holy. And in order to to get to that place, you gotta take the trash out. That we uh, also uh, owe a debt of uh, gratitude to Yogi Bhajan and 3HO because the impulse or the the first impulse and genesis of our having the idea to uh, found Many Rivers Books and Tea was a an occasion where we were in Santa Cruz and visited the uh, Gateways Bookshop, which was a, a a book a spiritual bookstore that I had known when I was a graduate student down there and. Uh, uh, I don't know if it still exists, but it ex- existed. Uh, I don't think uh, it does. Uh, Seventeen years ago, but uh, they—it uh, was a 3HO-founded organization, and I remember seeing that and hadn't realized that at when I first encountered the bookstore. And I said to Rob, "Well, if they could do that, we could we could have a bookstore," and that that really started the uh, mm-hmm. conversation that uh, ultimately led to our founding the uh, bookstore. So. The importance of leadership, I guess. In, <laughs> indeed. So, um, I, 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 if you don't mind, Stuart, I want to um, just I'm I'm curious about the uh, um, the connection between uh, 3HO and Sikhism, um, and um, how those are how those uh, movements are are separate and also alike. So. Uh, just to round out the hour, uh, uh, you know, if you can provide any clarity about that, that would be interesting. Yeah, um, I've been so I've been studying Kundalini Yoga now for probably how long has it been? Maybe it's going on three years. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm still I'm still a student very much. Um, I start my teacher training in the fall, which is very exciting. Hooray! Um, but um, I'm not sure that I have the the level of understanding enough of Sikhism to really describe and contrast the two. Okay. So, okay. Yeah. Thank you. That's that's a perfectly fine answer. So, um, you know, we just have a couple minutes before uh, uh, the break at the hour. So I'm wondering if you could maybe talk more about, you know, there's Kundalini Yoga, which is a fairly extensive organization and then within it I see I find different people focusing on different things uh, there seems to be a strong current of musical expression and uh, you know ecstatic uh, chanting clertons uh, we know some people in our town who uh, engage in um, uh, you know musical events along those lines and the the gong work seems to be another line or another current. So maybe maybe you could just set up, and then we can talk more about it in the next hour. What what is meant by you know the work with the gong? What is that? Where did that come from? Or what? How you know? How did the, whose brainchild was that? And uh, mm-hmm. and then we can get, elaborate more in the next hour how how that actually 
functions for you as a spiritual practice? Sure. Um, so to answer the, the first part of your question, um, the Kundalini Yoga community is, is very diverse in, in fact what it offers. So um, I believe the individual who won the Grammy this year for Best New Age Album, uh, her name is Sanatam Kar, and mm, she's yeah. a part of the Kundalini Yoga tradition. Um, there's a number of musical artists, Jai Jagdish, um, Gurunam Singh, and uh, uh, just an abundance, really, of, of folks who have done an amazing job of creating songs that incorporate the mantras the Gurmukhi mantras that the Kundalini Yoga tradition um, relies on and, and really utilizes. Um, there's also the Rama Institute of Applied Yogic Science in L.A. and New York City, which is hosting things like um, the Aquarian Business Institute, training the biz conscious business leaders of our future. Um, there's Immense Grace that they offer, which does a lot around motherhood and women's leadership and empowering women and elevating women into uh, a, a position that our society has historically not um, given them space and, and permission to do so. Um, they're, they're reclaiming a lot of power in that way. Um, and as you just said, the gong. I mean, the gong, I think, is the future. I think it's an incredible technology. It's, it's extraordinarily powerful. It affects the nervous system. It affects the mind. It affects the access and awareness of the inner self. And it is most certainly Yogi Bhajan's brainchild as it is practiced today. He was the one, it was not part of the Sikh tradition. Um, he was the one who introduced the gong into this practice. And one of his students, Sotantar Saraj, um, has now developed the Gong Avatar Academy um, after him. So the Gong Avatar Academy is not a Kundalini Yoga training. It incorporates some, but it is very different. We're, we pull from a lot of other traditions, both modern and, or let's say, contemporary and ancient. And, uh, yeah, there's, there's a lot of Gong playing going around, but I think Gong Avatar Academy's got a bit of a different flavor. Okay, so that, that's interesting, and we'll get more into that in the next hour. So what I understand is then... There's Kundalini, and there are practices associated with that tradition, some of which may be utilized in the uh, Gong Avatar Academy, but that's really more of a uh, a creative expression from uh, Sotantar uh, um, uh, Saraj that is going beyond or incorporating other elements, so it's not just a Kundalini tr yoga training. Yes. So you're doing both Kundalini yoga training and... Uh, the Gong Academy. And they are complementing one another, but they're very different. Got it. All right, well, we need to take a break at the hour. You're listening to The Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt. This week on the show, Rob and I speak in the studio with LGBTQ community leader and Kundalini yoga practitioner Jacob Rudolph. Jacob is the executive director of the Pride Network, which offers young LGBTQ leaders opportunities for personal transformation and professional development, and is a participant in the Gong Avatar Academy, led by his spiritual teachers, Trinity Devi and Sotantar Suraj. We'll return to our show after a short musical break. Musical interludes on this show are from a CD called Ravi Shankar Chants of India, produced by George Harrison. This chant is called Mangalam. Thank 
Welcome back to The Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick, joined by co-host Dr. Robert Schmidt, director of Tayu Meditation Center and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol. This week on the show, Rob and I speak in the studio with LGBTQ community leader and kundalini yoga practitioner Jacob Rudolph. 
Jacob is the executive director of the Pride Network, which offers young LGBTQ leaders opportunities for personal transformation and professional development, and a participant in the Gong Avatar Academy led by his spiritual teachers, Trinity Devi and Sotantar Suraj. So um, before the break, we were starting to talk a little bit more about the uh, uh, Gong Academy and um, the introduction of the use of the gong as a uh, facilitator for spiritual transformation. So maybe uh, you could start by just um, uh, giving a overview of what is entailed in the work of the gong work that Yogi Bhajan uh, introduced in uh, his Kundalini Yoga tradition and, and how that's been evolving in the uh, Gong Avatar Academy. Yes, so... Um, when Yogi Bhajan introduced the gong to Kundalini Yoga, he largely had it incorporated as the tool for inducing a unique shavasana after the kriya had been complete and students were meant to integrate and absorb their practice. And a shavasana refers to what? It is the final relaxation in a yoga class or experience, yes. So, so no, a lot of people who uh, practice various forms of yoga would recognize that as like the uh, corpse pose, that's the uh, shavasana, the, the uh, final relaxation when you're not you're releasing and uh, just allowing flow to happen. Yeah, and in many ways it's actually um, thought of as being the most challenging pose because it requires um, total relaxation, which I think is, is sometimes much more challenging most of the time I think it's much more challenging than to be in a state of uh, tension or activity which just sort of follows us around in our uh, daily experience Right. Um, and the gong is a uniquely uh, powerful tool for this because for facilitating the shavasana facilitating relaxation um, because it is is proven to have quite a significant effect on the parasympathetic nervous system, mm-hmm. which for folks who um, may not be aware, there are two uh, nervous systems within the human body that run sort of parallel to one another. The sympathetic nervous system is the nervous system that is our fight-or-flight response. It's the animal uh, impulse, the instinct, when we talk about the difference between reacting and responding. The reacting is that sympathetic nervous system. When we experience triggers in our in our lives, it's the sympathetic nervous system. Um, when we're standing at the edge of a, a cliff and our body freezes up, that's the sympathetic nervous system. So the parasympathetic nervous system is that which is our capacity to relax. When that is engaged, it's almost, um, if anybody is... Uh, watched the Discovery Channel or has a, a cat who has had a litter, Sometimes you see, especially in, in felines, they the mother will pick up its cub by the scruff of its neck um, with its jaws. And when that scruff is pulled on, on the baby, the whole baby's body just goes completely limp. The evolutionary trait is so that the mother can then carry the cub to safety um, when there is a danger present without there being any resistance from the cub, which may slow the mom down from from fleeing. Um, so the gong very much acts in that way. It acts as the mother lion cub picking up 
uh, the child from its scruff. It, it induces that sort of pulled scruff effect on, on the human being, um, giving us even more opportunity to to go into the relaxation. And when we're in that relaxation from a place of consciousness, conscious awareness, being able to watch the experience without getting pulled into thoughts or falling asleep or some of the other things that can happen when we find ourselves relaxed, um, we find some incredible space and opportunity to connect to our deeper self. So you you just said something there that um, um, maybe triggered my sympathetic nervous system, uh, and that's the um, you described a space in which we can be present to the arising of our thoughts without necessarily being uh, activated by them. Is that a um, byproduct of this practice, or is that a focus and something that's intentionally cultivated in this practice? Um, well, uh, we're speaking now on what happens in Shavasana. Mm -hmm. So I would say that yoga, my, my, my original yoga teacher taught me that uh, the asanas are ultimately meant to prepare the body for meditation and longer periods of meditation. Um, and so I think as a lot of yoga pr practitioners today um, tend to have a, a much more physical-oriented practice, um, that doesn't necessarily include so much meditation. Kundalini Yoga has a lot of meditation that it brings into the, the class experience, and it's encouraged for students to develop meditations and practice meditations. And so in Kundalini Yoga Shavasana, I think there's a little bit more emphasis around having, maintaining awareness in those states of relaxation. Um, the gong helps with the relaxation aspect, but the awareness is ever-present um, within every person and, and just is sort of a, a muscle that we get to train over time of being in the space of awareness um, yeah, without resistance. Well, that, that invites, because, because you uh, uh, mentioned um, not sleeping, not falling asleep, uh, that invites the question of the, does this awareness, threat of awareness, or can it potentially... Um, be maintained even if one, even if one, say, um, deliberately fell, uh, allowed sleep to come, or is that something simply to be avoided in this particular practice because you want to train the muscle at a time when it's more, most easily trained? I would say the ultimate goal is to relax, and if sleep happens, then sleep happens. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think... I think the emergence of awareness in a state of relaxation comes eventually, but trying to you know force oneself to be in awareness and not fall asleep and experiencing resistance to fall asleep is, is I think, counter to the intention of, okay. of the Shavasana. Got it. So with the practice of Shavasana is a, a yogic uh, pose and so in what you're describing is it does one um, ultimately enter into uh, shavasana and then um, uh, the gong the gong then facilitates a deeper relaxation or is there a, a, a more you know formal use of the gong as a uh, as a object of meditation in other contexts. Yeah, I mean, there the amount of people who have heard the gong versus who have played the gong is v drastically different. Um there there are not a lot of gong players 
uh, today. I'd say that there are more, and they're they're growing, and and it's happening more. I mean, when when Kundalini Yoga students go through teacher training, um, they're taught about the Gong. It's it's usually covered in the span of maybe a few hours of describing the basic playing techniques that Yogi Bhajan uh, introduced, which in, involves uh, circular motions, hitting the Gong with circular motions, not directly. Um, which some other traditions in Tibet, for example, you, you see players playing the gong um, with with short, rapid stri- strikes. Um, Yogi Bhajan taught something different, which is to use circular strokes. Um, it can it can be the basics can be conveyed in a short amount of time. However. Um, I, I think Yogi Bhajan himself said that it can be, or Don Conroe, who is another um, gong master widely um, regarded in, in the United States, um, it's it said that the gong can be learned in a, it can be learned in a minute, but it takes a lifetime to to master. So it's it's very simple, but also extraordinarily uh, complex. So what maybe for someone um, who's sense of a, uh, a gong is, you know, just, you know, again, striking it or hearing hearing a, um, like a spiritual bell or something like that at the beginning of a meditation. What What is the subtlety that's available? What What What, what is one mastering? Oneself. Um, the Gong Avatar Academy teaches that the gong is really a mirror for the self in the same way that you might look in a mirror um, and see your reflection, it's it's very much the same concept, but instead of seeing your reflection, you're hearing your reflection. Um, and being able to discern the quality of the sound that comes through uh, is what a lot of the gong training will focus on. Um, having the subtleness and this um, in yoga, kundalini yoga, we have a conversation around the ten bodies. Yogi Bhajan described that we have ten bodies, not just one physical body. Three of them are mental, five are energetic, and um, one is the soul and the other is the physical body. One of the energetic bodies is the subtle body. The subtle body is the capacity to see through appearances, to see through the surface. What may appear to be a mystery is just, in fact, an opportunity for mastery. Um, And our ability to be sensitive and to really feel and to really receive, much of this is relating to the feminine principles in spirituality, receptivity, etc., sensitivity. Um, Through this training with the gong, we increase our sensitivity Mm -hmm. to sound, and through the sensitivity, we begin to discern through the sound reflections of our own experience. So, so do you, um, as a practitioner, are you playing the gong yourself? Yes. Okay. Now, so it's not just when you when because it was a little confusing because there are people who will hear the gong you know, in mm. the, in the course of uh, maybe a, a yoga class, but uh, uh, and then you describe that people can be trained in playing the gong but the actual gong academy you 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 jump right in and you begin to explore for yourself the degree to which you can become sensitive to the gong as a mirror for your state yeah so it's 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 pretty interesting we we talk in the gong avatar academy about the balance between um polarities quite a bit and one of the the aspects of this training that I found to be very interesting is relating it again maybe to the masculine and the feminine or just another 
general look at polarity is uh, the gong can sort of be seen as the zero, the the the, the potential, the the unmanifest, the mallet, which is you with which with which we use to play the gong, can sort of be seen as the one, or or the manifest. So we have the zero. Mm-hmm. And we have the one. And for some of our listeners who may be uh, binary geeks or computer geeks, um, this is just sort of the fundamental basics of, of binary code. And um, in the Kong Avatar Academy, we were big fans of the movie The Matrix, which I think is a, is a very contemporary look at what the Buddhists refer to as Maya. Um, and so through playing with the one and the zero and combining them, we're creating... Um, we're activating quantum potentiality and we're actually creating um, reality in those moments which I think is in alignment with uh, the teachings around Dharma and Karma so we we reach this state of flow where it's not the ego playing the ego takes a a seat in in the passenger seat and allows the higher self to express itself through sound okay so so you um Said earlier that that you were uh, that in the fall you're going to start taking uh, I believe you said Kundalini uh, teacher training is, is that correct Yeah that's correct So um, but that's separate obvious or evidently from what you're saying from the gong and training to use the gong or do the gong yourself is, is that correct Yeah the the gong is is separate right now um I I have two gongs two beautiful gongs <laughs> talk about them like they're my kids um and I, I bring them with me to my Kundalini Yoga studio because the studio that I, I go to um, has not purchased a gong yet. So um, I, I love to share the gongs. My teacher will play the gong while I'm taking my Shavasana. Um, but it is it's a really beautiful way t- for me to begin to merge uh, the two with more mastery in my own experience. Because as I was sort of saying, when students go through the teacher training for Kundalini Yoga, the gong is only covered in just a couple of hours. Mm-hmm. Um, through the fortunes of life, um, I've had the opportunity to be involved in a program where I have the chance to study the gong for years. Um, and I'm now in the phase phase three of the gong academy, moving into my third year of study now with the gong. And it's it's taken on significantly more fascinating dimensions than any other Kundalini Yoga student may would ever have the opportunity to to dive into. So, so oh, well, I was just going to follow up uh, to ask. So, do I understand that the experience of the person playing the gong is different, but um, also equally um, useful? for their practice that is versus the person in uh, shavasana um yeah when when i'm playing the gong for example um for people who are taking shavasana because i I play when i host workshops i love hosting workshops on the new moon and the full moon which i regard as opportunities like gateways in many ways um Mm -hmm. again we're dealing with you know empty and fullness and the moon cycle is polarities polarity it's it's a great the moon cycle to me is a great way to um, set intentions and track those intentions over time and begin to manifest in my life. Um, and the gong is like an amplification tool. It, it's like a broadcasting tool. It's, I mean, it is loud. It can be very loud. And when we talk about intention, um, the gong, ex- in my view, relies almost exclusively on the intention of the player. The refinement of the sounds comes about through practice um, and sensitivity 
being open to the sensitivity growing inside as a quality of the experience but ultimately it's the intention that the gong player plays with that will have that will characterize the experience of the people who are receiving that sound um, but uh, but also the player as well exactly so for the player as well you sit down in front of this extremely powerful tool you set an intention then all of a sudden you're getting this really resonant feedback which mm-hmm. um this this the nervous system is primarily uh, distributed in our body throughout the skin. And the mm-hmm. sound that we experience when we hear the gong first hits us at the level of our skin. Mm-hmm. So it is having a, at the first wave of sound is hitting our nervous system. The nervous system then responds accordingly. It activates. We begin to relax. We begin to become more open, become more receptive. Um, things that we've been repressing or suppressing then begin to arise in our awareness, and um, we have the opportunity to surrender them and to let them go. And um, the gong is, is, is a tool for surrender in many ways for the, the player. Um, it's a very powerful tool for surrender. There's a lot that will come up within the individual's experience, which, again, I think is why it's, have, it's important to have um, a strong physical body and a strong nervous system when you're the player because if you're experiencing challenging things coming up from your unconscious while you are playing, it's really important to maintain that state of calmness and alignment with the intention while you're playing because otherwise you might start broadcasting out your garbage into into the group which I don't think a lot of other gong players really discuss very much mm-hmm. um, I think that that is one of the other things that separates the gong avatar academy from just the basic gong training that's offered uh, it is really what do you mean by, by other groups yeah by other groups and sort of as taught by um, KRI, which is the Kundalini Research Institute, which is the sort of almost like accrediting organization mm-hmm. for the for the teacher trainings. I see. So, well, let me let me ask you to just uh, briefly describe what the actual instrument is that that you're using. I mean, phys- physically, what it what does it look like? It's um it's a rounded metal object made um. There's there's a, there's various brands of gongs. You have Minel, um, Paiste. Uh, Paiste is sort of um, largely regarded as the like the gold standard of of gong quality. Um, they tend to be a little bit more expensive, um, but they're made out of a copper nickel alloy, so they're they're bright and shiny. Um, they have a wax coating in order to protect the surface of the gong, and they're hung on stands connected by a gut string. Usually, um, you can use like a paracord string if if gut gut string is not your thing. Um, but that's that's just how they're produced. And then the mallets um, come in different sizes and varieties. But the Peisty M3 mallet is is really the most versatile. What's what's the physical size? They range. So there are different kinds of gongs with respect to just what Peist. So I'm, I'll speak specifically about Peisty because this is what I would recommend to somebody. Um, there are what are called symphonic gongs and planetary gongs. So in the 20th century, um, there was a German physicist and astrologer named uh, Hans Cousteau, who I sometimes confuse with Jacques Cousteau, who <laughs> wrote a book called The Cosmic Octave, 
um, which is a very popular text, I think, among among certain spiritual students. And in in it, he describes his own calculations of celestial bodies relating to their orbital frequency. In other words, how long it takes for one planet to make one full revolution around the sun. Mm-hmm. Um, that orbital frequency, he realized, could then be translated into a harmonic frequency. And so he began a process of developing tuning forks that were tuned very specifically to each of the planets and the celestial bodies, the sun, moon, um, Pluto, Mercury, Jupiter, Venus, Mars. Um, what am I missing? That's, a, that's enough. Saturn. <laughs> you, you know the solar Neptune, system. Neptune, Uranus, Pluto. <laughs> um, Not Pluto anymore. Pluto still. Depends on who you ask. Pluto still. I'm a staunch Pluto advocate over here. Um, <laughs> Just what I'm saying, Stuart. Yeah. My sympathetic nervous system has been activated. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. So um, these planetary gongs are tuned very specifically to the the planets themselves. And I think one of the things that we talk about in the Gong Avatar Academy um, pretty intentionally is that each gong, each planet, has its own archetypical qualities to it that have been established in the collective unconscious and maybe even resonating out in the in the cosmos themselves. I mean, this is this is getting now into a little bit of astrology, which is something that the Gong Avatar Academy does pull a lot from. I think evolutionary astrology is is the the primary source of of information we're we're getting this from. Um, but for example, the, go- the first gong I got was Jupiter, Jupiter gong, which relates a lot to aspects of faith and trust, um, uh, joy and abundance and prosperity, fearlessness, these kinds of qualities. And so when we're playing these gongs, it's almost like there's built in intentions into the gongs that relate in many ways to the frequency that they are emitting. Um, so the gongs sort of have their own agenda. Uh, sometimes it feels like the gong wants to be played a certain way, and um, as the humble player, I just I, I allow that intuition to to guide me. Um, and when you begin to combine certain gongs, then you begin to get different effects. Um, one of the combinations that I think is particularly interesting and does relate back to what I was saying before about the matrix is this concept of um, being in the world but not of it, but also being passionately in the world um, and not of it, not having sort of a detached perspective Mm -hmm. from the world, but just simply a non-attached perspective. Mm -hmm. Um, And this can be expressed through the gong combination of Venus, which is all about passion and, you know, being really present with with excitement and... um, Pluto, which is about letting go and surrender. So you're you're surrendering while at the same time expressing passion, and it's 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 these kinds of combinations that really begin to tune and tune us into um, a lot of different spiritual modalities and truths and principles that are expressed across cultures. But we use the archetypes and we use the gongs and we use sound as a way to integrate and communicate these things um, without words, simply simply through sound. Um, and again, this is this is this is advanced gong knowledge and playing and training that I think is I'll, I'll say it again because there's a lot of gong players within the Kundalini community and within the circles, but the the quality of the playing and the intention of the playing is uh, it's a vast departure 
when we're talking or comparing, I guess, the Gong Avatar Academy with just the basic training that I think a lot of folks get. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm, I'm interested in your perspective and your experience then of how you, you've personally seen as you become more sensitized in this uh, practice how you've experienced the gong as a reflection of your particular state. Like, is it in the sound that uh, you hear? And can you know then, you know, like as you play, that it's a clear reflection and then that becomes the uh, focus for you to perhaps move or change, shift your state? Yes, exactly. We focus a lot in the academy around being able to shift your state. Um, the Gong Avatar Academy is, also, is most, <laughs> in a lot of ways, within our own culture, because we have a bit of a, a culture going on right now, um, as I think is natural with any group of people. Um, we call it the 111 Gong Avatar Academy. The 111 practice is um, whenever it's 111 o'clock <laughs> p.m. or a.m., uh, we set alarms for ourselves, and we... And those moments, we shift ourselves into an almost like an overdrive experience of when we were experiencing the most intense amount of joy in our lives, um, which is to, again, develop this muscle of, of learning how to, to shift out of a mental state and more into like a, the full experience of our own, our own consciousness. And so when, when I'm playing the gong, for example, um, of course, I mean, I'll get distracted or, or lose my focus and yeah, I'll, I'll be playing the gong, but then all of a sudden the end of my mouth it may may tip the gong a little bit and there's like like a clang kind of sound and it, it's 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 a it's an opportunity for me to you know recenter myself and realign and recommit to being present and, and playing with consciousness in the in the gong experience yeah, yeah i mean the analogy that uh, is coming up for me is is uh we've talked a lot on this show about in my own work with the shakuhachi the japanese bamboo flute that there's um with my teacher He's got a very sensitized ear, and he there's a authentic sound that he's looking for. And to get to that authentic sound requires quite a lot of attention in terms of activating aspects of the body and presence and posture and imaginal work and um, connecting uh, different parts of the body with each other for energetic support. There's a, there's a whole complex repertoire that's very impressionistic in that it, it, it kind of arises as he's uh, working with a student kind of spontaneously as he's tuning you up. But then when you hit that authentic sound, there's a quality in the sound that, um, uh, in my experience, goes right to the heart. And, you know, Rob has described how in years of watching this kind of practice, you know, he, he has attuned his ear also to... Uh, listen for what my teacher is listening for and so it's clear in that sort of production that there's a relationship between a state of being and the sound that's produced and I know I've seen uh, my teacher Koga work with other musicians with other instruments so uh, you know that that aren't necessarily wind instruments so it's not just about the wind I mean a string instrument uh, has the same issue and I would imagine a gong does too that your intention and your presence will absolutely influence the quality of the sound. Yes. I mean, the other thing, too, is when you're dealing with instruments, uh, you are working within the framework of notes and tones and scales and moving between um, 
one note to another note. Whereas with the gong, it's one fundamental tone yeah. for each gong. And the when you play the gong, what's so fascinating is that it will create dozens and dozens of undertones and harmonic tones spontaneously um, after it's been struck um, or if it's been played. So um, the quality of those tones and the complexity of of all of the other um, sound that comes out of what is just one fundamental tone, it's not really to create an intention to get a specific sound out or a specific tone out or a specific um, quality out. It's really just more to be in alignment with the intention because what comes out of the gong is far beyond what the mind is capable of, of grasping or understanding and it only really happens through through that inner alignment. Well, let, let me let me dig a little deeper on that because you, you mentioned that different gongs have at least a different astrological um, attunement and 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 therefore there are differences in attunement in in the different gongs to different um, purposes I mean one fundamental purpose would presumably be to enhance and maintain that awareness that you that you spoke of for both player and for the people for whom you're playing but um and you've spoke, and you've also spoken about the. Um, it seems like this particular planetary gong wants to be used in this particular context at this particular time. At least I've, that's what I understood you to say. Something along those lines. Is that well? First, so first, is that right? Um, in 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 many ways, yes. Um, I I'm speaking more broadly about the way that intuition affects the choices that I make when I'm with a gong. Mm-hmm. Um, that it is it is so far beyond the left brain calculating linear expression of uh-huh. the mind sure. that it it's it is well, but you've got two. Let's say because you've described you take two gongs to um, whatever training it is that you're doing mm-hmm. or, or uh, uh, event. So how so so you? I guess what I'm what I'm hearing you say is that. Is that there's an intuition about which gong to play? I guess I don't even know. Do they play them simultaneously? Is there, are there vibrations for bo- from both of them nece- uh, maybe happening at the same time? Yes. Okay. So when there's multiple gongs, I I play them both at the same time. Or if there's three or if there's four, um, okay. one of the things the Gong Avatar Academy does do is host overnight gong concerts, which is about ten hours of of gong while people sleep, and mm-hmm. there's almost ten gongs present. Um, it's a really incredible, very powerful. Powerful um, vortex of, of of experience and sound, mm-hmm. um, comparable in energy almost, I think, to uh, the white tantric yoga experiences that I was saying before about how they're considered to be worth a year's worth of meditation or multiple years of psychotherapy. These gong concerts are extraordinary experiences. Um, when when these multiple gongs are are together, it's still then just about the intention of of blending the sounds and blending the gongs and what they represent. But it's not about trying to get particular sounds out of the gongs. So so there wouldn't I mean, um, like a group of people might wouldn't come together in order to experience the Jupiter gong or whatever it had to tell them, or would they? Um, I'm, I guess I'm a little unclear. It's if well, I'm a, I, I guess what I'm asking is um, if if there's a, uh, a sort of agree- a common agreement beforehand, if 
multiple gongs are present is they're going to be like uh, asking for um, a focus on on whatever whatever um, energetic configuration a particular gong would would uh, be able to open so all gongs are a gift mm-hmm um, the opportunity to hear and experience a gong is something that I don't think many people in this world have the opportunity to 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 have. Mm-hmm. Um, and regardless of whatever gong is played, it is going to positively impact the nervous system, mm-hmm. uh, the quality of the mind, and our capacity to surrender unconsciousness and experience awareness. Um, there are intentions on part of Gong Avatar Academy students, and I'll speak from my own experience here, about selecting gongs strategically, um, choosing gongs that will p- to purchase gongs to include in our own personal lives, mm-hmm. um, gongs that will, through the built-in intention, through the sound or through you know whatever transmission is being given through the academy itself. Um, and the way that the gongs have wound up in alignment with these transmissions will begin to target very specific aspects of our psyche. So the planets just represent the various aspects of the human psyche. And so when I picked the Jupiter gong, for example, as my first gong, it was to um, address in many ways and, and begin to cultivate a much more healthy relationship around faith, for example, because, you know, when I was a kid, I wasn't really built into a a religion or a system that Mm -hmm. gave me those tools and and practices early on. And that's something that I wanted to develop. But then the specific, what what I was asking is, then at a specific occasion for the use of that gong, there's there's no additional kind of input of say you know I, I guess i'm thinking a little bit of the of an analogy with using um a tarot deck or some other divinatory tool so there's no there's no like particular focus on a particular occasion in using a particular gong so that, I'll, that, I'll give you that, an, i'll give you an example okay um the summer solstice was just the other day yesterday yes the sun gong would be a very appropriate gong to play for that occasion. Mm-hmm. Um, when the new moon is in uh, Sagittarius, for example, in November, it would be a great time to play the Jupiter gong, which corresponds to the sign of Sagittarius. Okay. Um, you know, and then then that can go on and on. Um, so, okay. depending I- on how many gongs you got. That's a lot of. They're, those a suckers, lot of they're, they're, suckers are expensive. Let me tell you. I mean, when you're when you're making an investment in a gong, it's 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 an investment. You're mm-hmm. you're really you're really throwing down um, four figures, um, okay. on the lower end usually, but but nonetheless. And so, it's I I don't think people have had enough exposure or experience with gongs to feel like they want to pick and choose what's going on. I think a lot of folks are just like, oh, a gong, this is cool, and hey, what does that symbol on your gong mean? Oh, it means this, Jupiter, and, and these characteristics and principles, faith, love, uh, you know, trust, abundance, etc. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow, okay, cool, and then 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 they lie down. So it's not like I've ever had someone, a, a student or, or someone who's attended my workshop, come up to me and say like, oh, why didn't you bring, you know this or like i really wish that you had brought this one and it's 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 well then i i think that you know part maybe part of the uh question um that at least is arising for me and might be part of rob's question is 
the the scope of the intention that you bring to the uh, uh, playing of the gong is is the intention to be aligned with the gong in its particular disposition and to be a channel for that energy or would one bring a variety of different intentions uh, depending on something that one may be working on and introduce that intention into the space of the the sonic space produced by the sound such that that sound would uh, as it were amplify or to project out into the universe mm-hmm. the quality of that intention yeah so at least as it's discussed in, in the gong academy that I'm a part of it's it's simpler is is, is better um, so rarely would I think I ever might find myself coming into a workshop with a series of many intentions. You know, when I host workshops on the new moon, for example, or the full moon, I like to choose a meditation that we'll do during the workshop that's in alignment and, and how I feel the, the sign of, of the, the time is. Um, but And sometimes when I'm playing, I'll notice some themes or feelings through the sensitivity of, of experiencing the sound and just my own awareness. I can sort of feel sometimes there's even like an alignment um, with, with the sign itself. So if, I'll give you an example to make this a more concrete. Mm-hmm. I did a new moon uh, gong bath for the month of uh, Taurus, when Taurus was in the new moon, just uh, in May. And... While I was playing, we were, or I had planned to do a meditation for Earth and connecting deeply into the Earth. It was actually a beautiful meditation by John Kabat-Zinn, mm-hmm. um, imagining oneself as a mountain. Really powerful, really beautiful. Um, and while I was playing, I was very much feeling the tattva, or the elements of Earth. The qualities, those qualities were very much characterizing my playing in those moments. It wasn't my intention to bring those qualities and characteristics, at least consciously, it wasn't my intention to bring those qualities and characteristics to my playing, but that's what came through. Because ultimately what my intention is and was then is to surrender into the experience of playing the gong and allow it to become a flow state. Um, We talk in the Gong Avatar Academy a lot about Mahamudra, um, which is um, largely from uh, Osho. Mm-hmm. Um, he talks quite a bit about that. It's, it's being in that state of like total, total flow, total surrender. Um, the ole, you know, <laughs> the Allah, uh, the Allah state. So when when that is happening, when there is a flow going on, there is there's things moving through me that just do not flow through me in my ordinary experience um maybe they would if i let them um i'm sure that they would if i let them but it's it's much more conscious on my part when i'm sitting in front of the gong um the other thing and just touching on one of the other things you mentioned about intentions and is sometimes um i can play with an intention to chant a mantra while i play because as i sort of said in the beginning of this interview underneath the syllables of all the mantras is a sound current the nod n-a-a-d and the nod, the sound current, can be expressed through the gong as well. And that's ultimately the goal. Um, through playing the gong, we find sort of the nod of our own selves. Um, chanting a particular mantra like the Gayatri mantra, um, if I'm repeating this in my head again and again and again while I'm playing the gong, it just, through receiving the feedback of the sound, I'm receiving the nod of the mantra itself, which mm-hmm. reinforces itself at the cellular level and the l- level of consciousness as, it, as the sound begins to impact my, my physical body. So, Got it. 
Well, we only have uh, about uh, four or five minutes left, and so I wanted to kind of uh, uh, tie this up and just let you speak a little bit about your vision of how you bring all of this into your leadership work and uh, how you see the the possibility of bringing, as it were, spiritual technologies or spiritual modalities into uh, contexts uh that might create possibilities for um, the next generation of world server. Yes, it is about the next generation. I I really feel like my vision is is almost a generation out. Um, I would love to see a generation of leaders emerge who are conscious, who are heart-centered, um, who have resilience and the capacity to maintain themselves and maintain their commitments and uplift their environments and create meaningful and sustainable positive social change in vulnerable communities at a grassroots level. And all of this, I think, is hard to achieve without tapping into the power of our own authenticity beyond socially constructed identities. So we may find some power from these identities, whether we're gay, whether we're um, rich, whether we're black, whether we are um, Hispanic. It, it is, in my view, fundamental to the discovery of one's own power and one's own authenticity to get in touch with the soul and the relationship to the soul. Um, so I hope to begin to introduce these spiritual technologies um, like Kundalini Yoga and Pranayama and meditation uh, with young people who have never heard of these things but have the capacity, I believe, to, to transform their experiences with themselves, um, ultimately reduce harm uh, in the community around drug abuse and um, risk sexual behavior and in-group, out-group mentalities, cultivating compassion and heart-centeredness for um, our detractors and our oppressors because I also believe that the oppressors need liberation just as much as um, anybody else. So it, it's, it's creating a world in which we all have the, the, the potential and possibility to, uh, to reach our full potential. Got it. Well, I mean, uh, what I appreciate about this is uh, it's a vision that uh, doesn't uh, take the football of one's uh, spiritual practice and go home or go to the mountaintop, but actually um, goes into the world and tries to offer what what can be received, which is always a tricky thing in um, uh, a sectarian culture, but what can be received to achieve everything that you described. And I'll even add um, that anybody who has a spiritual practice or a faith that they subscribe to, the, everything that I believe that we're offering um, going forward is, is so compatible with, with anything that's already pre-existing. So it's only to enhance and not to not to take anything away. Yeah. So is there a... Uh, uh you know, website or some other um, Facebook page or whatever for the uh, with a schedule of some of the activities of the Gong Academy, etc. Yep, the Gong Avatar Academy is on Facebook. You can look them up there. They're also on Instagram. Um, you can go to Gong Master. So what what title org. would you what what's what uh, what search term would you use for these things? If you're looking for events from the Gong Avatar Academy, most of them are in uh, Newport Beach, California, Los Angeles area. Okay. Um, you can Google Sotantar, S-O-T-A-N-T-A-R. Okay. 
Um, you'll you'll find a lot of really great resources. He's also uh, has many recordings on Spotify, or and Apple Music for for folks who use music streaming services, um, mm-hmm. or even would like to purchase stuff. I think that incorporating the sounds of the gong into one's own personal practice while one is meditating, or if one has a an at home practice to to listen during shavasana, or if we have yoga teachers who are listening to consider playing gong music at the end of their classes um, mm-hmm. instead of other music. Um, look look up Sotantar on, on Spotify and Apple Music. I think there's a lot of reward there. And also, feel free to visit thepridenetwork.org. Um, if you'd like to support our work, we'd be happy to accept your financial contributions. And we also have a community input page if you feel like there's some issue in your community that needs to be addressed um, that'll go into our database. And we work with youth leaders to to equip them with what they need to create those changes in our community. So. And, and and if someone wanted to contact you directly, that would be probably through the Pride Network, right? Jacob at thepridenetwork.org is my email. And, yes, okay. if you go onto our website, you'll have all that. Great. All right. Well, uh, Jacob Rudolph, uh, Manoush Balder, thank you for joining us this week on The Mystical Positivist. Yes, it's been great. We thank appreciate you. it. Thank you for having me. All right. Thanks. You've been listening to The Mystical Positivist. This is your host, Stuart Goodnick. This week on the show, Rob and I have been speaking in the studio with LGBTQ community leader and kundalini yoga practitioner Jacob Rudolph. Jacob is the executive director of the Pride Network, which offers young LGBTQ leaders opportunities for personal transformation and professional development. And he's a participant in the Gong Avatar Academy, led by his spiritual teachers Trinity Devi and Sotantara Suraj. Next week's show on The Mystical Positivist will most likely be an encore presentation, but you never know. Tune in for that show on Saturday, June 29th from 4 to 6 p.m. Upcoming on the spiritual calendar in Sonoma County, follow your dread to the mystical heart. That's with Taiyu Meditation Center staff. First Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. That's, uh, the next uh, date is July 3rd. Many Rivers Books and Tea, 130 South Main Street in Sebastopol, is the location. Story has it that in the very bottom fissure of hell, the deepest recess glowing with unquenchable fire, a simple drain cover lies unnoticed. Find and remove the cover, descend through the narrow drain, and emerge into the highest, most radiant realm of heaven. If this metaphor resonates with something in you, our practice group work that focuses upon follow your dread may resonate still more deeply. No one could be divorced from or denied access to the mystical heart, but to open and then live within the mystical heart of the world and ourselves has a cost. We don't get there by denying, sweeping under the rug, or putting aside the aspects that we dislike of who we have been. The mystical heart receives the light and the dark without judgment, so in our group and individual practice we seek to cultivate a heart-mind that holds all consciousness all contents of consciousness simultaneously with discernment and without discrimination. Following your dread is is an undertaking best accomplished in the company of fellow travelers and with guidance from others who have gone before. Join us uh, first Wednesdays to learn more about the realistic path to the mystical heart. Thank you for joining us once again for The Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com, as well as commentary and discussion of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send feedback and comments to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com and join us again next Saturday. We leave you with music from a CD called Ravi Shankar, Chants of India, produced by George Harrison. This chant is called Asato Ma. Enjoy.